millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Desi, let's start off the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We just put two new bonus episodes up there. Yeah. So go check them out. This week we had Kathy, Miranda, Jill, Michiko, Emma, Maggie, Amanda, Sarah, Nadia, Angela, Chelsea, Eric, Natasha, Rolanda, Charles, Asha, and Craft Encounters of the Nerd Kind. Ooh. I like that. Yeah. Okay, Rachel. So today we're going to talk about Dorothy Dandridge. She was the first black woman, actually the first black person to be, I mean, for, yeah, person to be nominated for a Best Actress or a Lead Actor Academy Award. There had only been um, one before, Hattie McDaniel, who did win for Gone with the Wind. And she really shined brightly for a short time, but due to racism and some career missteps, she quickly faded out and had a pretty tragic end to what was a bright and promising life. Uh, my source for this book is called Dorothy Dandridge. It's by Donald Bogle or Bogle. This is an extensively researched biography. It's over 600 pages. It literally killed me <laughs> to finish it in time for this episode because it was so detailed. And it was like one of those books where it's like a lot of a really small typeface. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> And it's very good. It goes into a lot of um, Hollywood history that I'm not going to get into very much in this episode. So if you want to read about it um, and Dorothy Dandridge, it's definitely a recommended book. So let's get started. On November 9th, 1922 in Cleveland, Ohio, 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 this is how tired I am. I'm going to do my best. Ohio. Dorothy Dandridge was born to an aspiring entertainer named Ruby Dandridge and Cyril Dandridge. He was a cabinet maker and a Baptist minister, and she came into a pretty volatile home situation uh, when she was born. Now, her dad, Cyril, was described as a boring mama's boy, whereas Ruby was a plump with a gift for gab type girl. Everyone loved her. She was very vivacious, and she hated living with Cyril and her mother-in-law. It was truly a match made in hell. Cyril was not like an abusive or bad husband, but you can imagine living with a mama's boy and his mom. It's not like the makings of like a great marriage, especially for someone like Ruby. That's like a very common 90-day fiancé situation. It's like trouble. Like, it never ends well. No. Now, yeah, that is a very common thing. Like the few seasons I've seen, <laughs> there was a few couples that moved, she moved right in with the parents and they're all very skeptical of her. Yeah, it's just not a great scene. Now, Ruby was definitely adventurous and she wanted to have the most out of life while her husband was pretty fine with just keeping things status quo. 
When Ruby got pregnant with her first daughter, Vivian, she became so fed up with her home life, she actually did the unthinkable at the time, taking her baby and leaving her husband for six weeks. Now, she eventually came back because she was broke and things didn't get better in the marriage, though. She got knocked up a second time, and when she was five months pregnant with Dorothy, she left her husband again. Ruby decided at that point she wanted nothing more to do with Cyril and never went back to him. She actually told the girls growing up that their dad was not interested in his children, wanted nothing to do with them, and had all but erased them from their lives, from his lives. At some point, she even told them that he had died, but eventually had to admit the truth when he showed up one day when they were teenagers to meet them at something. (laughs) It's like, whoops. Uh, So, yeah. Now... Ruby made herself the center of the girl's world, making her rejection of Dorothy later on in life all the more painful. Like she pretty much set herself up to be the son to these girls. So everything she did meant so much to them. Ruby was obsessed with movies and wanted to find that kind of stardom, but realized her best chance was to get in on the local church scene. She began to do things like reciting poems at these performances that this Baptist church circuit would have. Dorothy recalled watching her mom really in awe of her ability to like make these poems like become these performances. Once her mother had to back out of a recitation and Dorothy said she could do it since she had the poem memorized from watching her mom practice it so much. Needless to say, Dorothy was a hit and Ruby realized she could find the fame she sought through her children. (laughs) Classic momager. Yeah. So obviously once Vivian saw the attention Dorothy was getting, she's like, I want in on this too. So Ruby basically turned their home into a performing arts academy, teaching them to sing and dance and act. It was like nonstop like training for these girls. They were soon the hit of this church circuit, but Ruby wanted more. She wanted to take this act to the big time. Now, around the same time, Ruby met a woman at church named Geneva Williams. She had also recently left a bad marriage and also hated men. (laughs) She moved in with Ruby, and needless to say, the girls were confused by this relationship. Geneva and Ruby were opposites. Geneva was very grounded and serious. As I mentioned, Ruby is very vivacious. She's still performing and pretty much is the breadwinner of this family. Geneva, who was very disciplined and organized, became the homemaker and took over childcare as well. So were they in a relationship? Yes. Oh. No one knew this, though, while this was going on. Like, the girls would see them kind of touch and stuff, but they had no idea that they were in a relationship. That's probably because the girls had other concerns (laughs) at this time. Geneva, who wanted to be called Auntie Mama... It turned out had a real sadistic streak. She was very controlling and would regularly beat the girls for the most minor of infractions, including beating them with things like a hairbrush. She was really volatile, and the girls never knew when she would strike. Like They had to walk on eggshells because it would just fucking come out of nowhere. Obviously a very frightening existence for any child. Now Vivian, who was called Vivi, was more docile and Dorothy called Dottie was more willful. So she faced even more severe beatings. Sometimes Vivian would actually say like, can I have her beating? Like she's already had so many. Another thing that would happen is at the end of the day, sometimes Dottie would whisper to her sister that she hadn't gotten a beating to that beating that day. And her sister would say, shh, the day isn't over. (laughs) Like they were just in bed together. Like so sad. Now Geneva eventually took 
over the showbiz training as well. She was a musician, so she could kind of help them with their singing lessons. And she was just as much of an abusive bitch with that as well. So much so that Dorothy would end up having debilitating stage fright when she was an adult, paralyzed with fear over making any mistake and being criticized for it. Uh, That's just a nightmare. Now, Ruby eventually created a whole song and dance act for her young daughters under the name The Wonder Children. It was a huge success, and they toured all over the U.S. nonstop for five years on the Chitlin circuit. Um, They're under 10, by the way. Wow. (laughs) They're very young children, literally doing this exhausting tour for like from like five to 10 years old or maybe up until 12. Um, so yeah, that's like a fucking stressful scene. They weren't going to school, um, at all. Now performing became Dorothy's joy and also her prison. She often spoke about how the hugs and affection she got from Ruby and uh, mama after a successful performance was the only time she ever felt truly loved. Her contradictory feelings about performing continued the rest of her life. Like it definitely was the source of joy and pain for her. When the Great Depression hit and work dried up, Ruby decided to move everyone to Hollywood, and she began to find some work on radio and in film, playing stereotypical domestic servant type parts. Dorothy and Vivian were finally enrolled in real school, and it was there that they met a friend named Etta Jones. Those girls began singing together, and Etta's father like walked in on them and was just so impressed he showed Ruby the girls singing. Ruby quickly saw opportunity and decided to repackage the group. So in 1934, the Dandridge sisters were born, Etta being the third fake sister. Dorothy didn't care for the addition. The Dandridge sisters were a success, and that success led them to working in film. Dandridge's first on-screen appearance was a small part in our gang in an our gang comedy short called Teacher's Bow in 1935. So she's only like 12 here. She's yeah. like a kid. Um An interesting thing I heard is that typically back then, what Hollywood would do was use performers in nightclub scenes so that those scenes could be easily cut when they played the films in the South. So they wouldn't have black actors in any other sort of lead roles other than like maids and servants. And that was how they kind of like would add black performers in these nightclub scenes where they were singing and playing music that were easily taken out when they played the movies in the South. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of interesting if you think back to some older movies, there's always those scenes where it's like, oh, that's like famous people like Louis Armstrong or whoever. And then those scenes would just be cut out of those movies for certain certain demos. Um, But yeah. Wow. So there was also at this time thing called race films. These were films produced for black audiences and starring all black cast One of the more famous ones that I've actually seen is called Cabin in the Sky, and it was directed by Vincente Minnelli. I think it was his first movie, and it starred Lena Horne. Uh, This was an opportunity for talented black performers to play roles that they would never land in mainstream films. Dorothy rejected ever doing those stereotypical kind of roles, which severely limited her options when she was just starting out. She was so beautiful and talented, though, she still kept getting little bit parts here and there. As the girls reached their mid-teens, Mama began doing even more disturbing rituals with the girls. She was obsessed with their virginity, particularly Dorothy, and she would bind her breasts down under her dress dress so that no men would ever look at her. And like, just to be clear, this is their stepmom type. Or whatever. Whatever yeah. she is. Yeah, their this mom- is their stepmom called Mama. 
are that's what they called her. The mom's girlfriend. Yes, basically the mom's girlfriend. So yeah, I mean that's sick. Vivian joked at the time that she tried it with her, but Vivian had huge tits and she's like, she couldn't tie down these tits. Like <laughs> Vivian is like very she like looks like the mom. She has the mom's body, like just really big titted, curvy, yeah. like that kind of thing. Ruby became obsessed with Dorothy, who she thought had the greatest chance to become a star out of all the family. She really began to reject Vivian, who, like as I said, looked and had a personality similar to her. So it was almost like she kind of rejected those things about herself that she thought was holding her back. Uh, Dorothy was more shy and refined and had like a more, you know, slim figure, that kind of stuff, which was obviously more conducive to having a Hollywood career. At that time. But most people who knew them said Ruby only cared about Ruby. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash H-C-S. In 1938, they got their big break when they landed a gig at the Cotton Club. It was during this trip that Dorothy met Harold Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers, who were huge stars on the Black entertainment scene and in film. Harold was a real ladies' man, but he and Dorothy hit it off right away, and he was pretty much smitten the moment he laid eyes on her. Was this the Cotton Club in Harlem or in Culver City? It's in Harlem. The the original one. The original. Okay. So... Now, one thing this engagement really taught Dorothy was how to perform for a white audience. Up until that point, she had only really performed live for black audiences, and the Cotton Club was white-only patrons. Other than the talent, there was only, like, white. So it was like they're just performing for white people. Right. It's insane. We talked about that in our Gladys Bentley episode. So she really had to learn how to kind of perform for that, which was a different... She had to do it differently for them, and that would really help her when she started trying to propel into more mainstream, mainstream film roles. The Cotton Club engagement was so successful, the girls got booked a lot more in other big venues across the country, as well as an overseas tour. It was in London where another horrific incident happened between Mama and Dorothy. A friend of Dorothy's in London had become pregnant, and Auntie Mama became convinced that Dorothy was also pregnant. She told Dorothy that she would be giving her a vaginal exam to see if she had lost her virginity. Dorothy did not want to do this, obviously, but Mama like basically shoved her into a room and began giving her, like, ripped her pants, panties down and started examining her uh, down there. Oh now, God. Dorothy was screaming in pain when she began doing this exam. Not that it matters, but she was a virgin. <laughs> like, so this was, like, in Dorothy's mind, it's like, what are you doing? I told you I've never done this. She's assaulting her. She's, she's, Dorothy said she felt like she had been raped after this happened. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. this is bad. So... At some point during this exam, she hauls off and fucking hits her with her fit, hits mama with her fist. She said during that moment, she was enraged and she had made up in her mind and her head that she would never let this woman abuse her again. She continued hitting mama, which she said felt great. Like it just felt so good to finally fucking hit this woman. Mama was getting so beaten that she called Vivian for help and she never hit Dorothy again or touched her. Wow. So it was the end of it. I mean, she's still a bitch, but <laughs> there was no more of that fucking shit. Now, it was around this time that Dorothy started really dreaming of becoming a solo act. When they got back to L.A., her courtship with Harold Nicholas also resumed as he and his brother were beginning to do more film and spending more time in L.A. At the age of 18, the Dandridge sisters performed for the last time at the West Coast Cotton Club in Culver City. Dorothy moved on to pursuing her real dream, becoming an actress. Now, she lucked out um, in 1941 when Harold landed her a spot in a musical for 20th Century Fox called Sun Valley Serenade. Him and his brother were performing to a new song called Chattanooga Choo Choo, but it wasn't going really well in a rehearsal and it just fell kind of flat. He had the idea to bring Dorothy in as sort of a romantic interest to the song she sings like the opening line, which is very famous, like, hey, boy, it's like, pardon me, boys, like that kind of line. She opens up the scene. She dances with them and then goes off while they dance because they're like off the rails. Good. Like right. she's a good dancer, but not them good. So it was a very extra number. Like it was a huge hit. 
Um, this got her noticed by Daryl Zanuck. The musical sequence is considered one of the all-time greatest. And also the song was a huge hit. So everything about it just kind of fell into place and definitely gave her like this little star-making splash. Now, her romance with Harold Nicholas was also getting more serious, and the two were eventually married in 1942. Guests at their wedding including, included a who's who of black entertainers, including Oscar winner Hattie McDaniel. However, it was an unhappy marriage, which deteriorated pretty quickly due to Nicholas's womanizing and inattentiveness. While Dorothy was basically trying to be this happy homemaker, he was just never around. Dorothy would cry every night waiting for him to return home. One incident that showed the depths of Harold's cold nature was when Dorothy was in the hospital for a few days following a car accident. He never visited her. He was just playing golf and carousing, basically. Mm. Her sister-in-law, who was married to um, Harold's brother, Jerry Pate, she came every day, and they just developed a really cute and like cool friendship. She introduced Dorothy to a more intellectual world, including politics and art, Uh, She, like, talked to her, like, Dorothy had never been spoken to in that way, like, about really, like, more highbrow things. And that really, like, inspired her. After she left the hospital, she started reading more. She just became a voracious reader. She declared that Jerry was her best friend, and they were close the rest of her life. Jerry was the first person Dorothy was able to completely depend on and trust. It was also around this time that Ruby began to become more popular as an actress, but as her popularity grew, so did the rumors about her relationship with Geneva. Dorothy had long ignored the fact that her mom and mama were lovers, but now it was impossible because people were talking about Ruby calling her a dyke and a bull dagger. Like that was the rumors going around Hollywood. Jerry really became a confidant to Dorothy and she just told her everything. She finally had someone to talk about her feelings with, which she never really had before, even with her sister, because there was so much weirdness and competition in the family. It was around this time that Dorothy also developed a real interest in psychology. Now, Dorothy became pregnant in 1943, but as is the case with bad marriages, it did nothing to improve her relationship with her husband. Harold was still never around, and when she went into early labor, he actually told her it was a false alarm because he had to go somewhere, so she should just, like, don't worry about it. It's it's fine. You're not actually going into labor. She was going into labor. She eventually goes to the hospital. Her husband is nowhere to be found. She claimed to have tried to hold the baby in so Harold could arrive before the baby was born, but he never came. Her daughter was born on September 2nd after an extremely difficult labor. The daughter's name is Harlan Suzanne Nicholas, and she goes by Lynn. Forceps are used to get the baby out, and for weeks the baby had marks on its head from them, and this just really traumatized Dorothy. Um, she really embraced motherhood, but it, like I said, it didn't help her marriage. In the mid-40s, she also began to feel the itch to get back to performing, She slowly began to do some live performances here and there and a bit of acting. She also began to cultivate a more Hollywood look that pretty much all actresses were expected to do, but especially ones that were considered ethnic actresses. For instance, like Rita Hayworth had to like do a lot of things to make her look less, I think, I'm not sure what she was. She's Latina. She's Latina, yeah. Um, Rita Hayworth got electrolysis yeah, to, for her hairline to make right? her hairline larger. So a lot of actresses had to go under extreme beauty treatments, but especially ones who were considered ethnic had to do a lot of fucking shit. And basically 
whiten their looks, like try to get them to look as Caucasian as possible. Dorothy even was instructed to let people think she was mixed race, like that she was not 100% black. That was another thing that she kind of had to do. Meanwhile, her husband is in New York City rehearsing and launching a major Broadway show. So she's completely alone with her child and just really desperate to get her career back. She was worried she had lost all the momentum she had started to build. In 1947, Dorothy began to notice that something was not right with Lynn. Already a toddler, she was still not speaking. As the child got older with no improvement, Dorothy did everything she could to find out what was wrong with her and what the cure was. Every day it was different doctor's appointments and like medical treatments. Nothing, no one knew what was wrong with her daughter. Needless to say, it was a very frustrating time in her life and she was pretty much inconsolable that she was unable to help her child. Lynn also had behavioral problems, and with Harold MIA, Dorothy was dealing with this alone. Adding to that mix was her guilt that whatever was wrong was her fault. She had worried that she delayed the labor, and that was what caused what had happened to her daughter. She was also haunted by the forcep marks. She was like, did that do something? Uh, She was certain that she had caused whatever disability was affecting her daughter. It was decided at some point that Lynn needed 24-hour care, and Dorothy's psychiatrist told her she needed to turn Lynn over to someone who could provide that, or Dorothy would end up institutionalized because no one could handle that kind of like stress and nonstop work. Now, Ruby and Geneva agreed to care for her with the help of a nurse. So, I mean, she really had no options that she would send it back to those two. At the same time, Jerry was having trouble with her husband, Fayard Nicholas, who was also philandering. The two women started throwing themselves into politics, volunteering with um, Democratic Party groups, and getting involved in civil rights activism. She was also determined to get her career back, and she wanted to be a serious actor, so she joined the Actors Lab, which was the West Coast version of the Actors Studio, with fellow students including Anthony Quinn and Marilyn Monroe. Now, This was a real mix of acting and progressive politics, which was a perfect fit for Dorothy. It was one of the only places that was fully integrated, and that led to a mini-scandal when Hedda Hopper posted about her, Dorothy, and Anthony Quinn seen dancing together. The only thing that made it acceptable was when people realized that Quinn was half Mexican. Are you serious? Yes. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, the stress of her life really came to a head and Dorothy made two suicide attempts in the late 40s. While recovering from the second attempt, she decided she had to leave Harold, but just didn't know how to do it. Around the same time, Dorothy found a doctor who finally leveled with her about her daughter, Lynn. The doctor told her that she was brain damaged and that Dorothy was best off putting her in an institution and having a new child. This is so heartbreaking. I know. It's really sad. And isn't that a cold doctor? That's like, have a new kid. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. That is what a heartbreaking thing to hear. The doctor said that it was likely during delivery that not enough oxygen had reached the baby's brain, causing irreversible brain damage. Ironically, this diagnosis brought her some kind of peace because at last she knew what was fucking wrong with her daughter, you know, so it's like awful. But at the same time, she finally knew like there is something. But for the rest of her life, there is just an inner turmoil about this that she never lets on to. On the outside, she's serene and loving, but on the inside, she is in absolute pain about her daughter the rest of her life. She did send her daughter to live with a loving woman who was hired to be her full-time caregiver. Now, By 1950, she was divorced from Harold and completely refocused on her career with a new energy. 
A few depressing casting disappointments occurred. Those were the movies Pinky and another movie Showboat. Pinky is about a black woman who passes as white and Showboat's lead is a character that's mixed, mixed race. Now, both roles went to white women, Ava Gardner in Showboat and Jean Crane uh, in Pinky. Uh, Dorothy, these things were just hurt her because she's like, if I can't get these roles, like, where do I fit in in Hollywood? Part of the issue here is that the motion picture code had a strict policy of not showing interracial love stories. So even when a character was mixed race, they would always be played by a white woman. When Dorothy met composer and pianist Phil Moore, her life changed forever. Together, they created a successful touring act, and he worked with her nonstop to create a crossover appeal similar to what he had done with Lena Horne. They also became lovers, and by all accounts, it was a great relationship and a very stable time in Dorothy's life. But it did have a definite, like, uneven power dynamic, this older man kind of guiding this naive young girl who basically ceded all control to him so that he could create her, you know, stardom, basically. Um, And this is a relationship she would get into again, like a type of relationship she would get into again later in life. Now, at the time, Phil was also coaching a lot of big stars, including Marilyn Monroe and Ava Gardner when she was training for her role in Showboat. This obviously caused a bit of strife with Dorothy because she's like, what the fuck? Phil said it helped level the playing field for Dorothy, who was used to being the beauty in the relationship. Even though he was not a looker, he, he thinks that she saw him as someone that was like really desirable from by hot women like these women were like Marilyn Monroe used to just go hang out like they were all like sort of smitten with this guy because he was making them a star right so he was kind of like yeah it made me more appealing to her probably to see that like these you know hot women were all over me now all of this performing on the big club circuit culminated with a legendary performance at the Mocambo nightclub in West Hollywood this success seemed a new turn in her career and she appeared in several other huge locations or, or clubs in New York and Café de Paris and London with all, all big successes. Of course, her relationship with Phil became more strained as he began to resent not getting more credit for her success. Also, the, plus, I'm sorry, the press were really firing up this rivalry between Dorothy and Lena Horne at this point. It just didn't exist. It was just purely made by the press. But despite her club success, Dorothy still wanted to be an actress. Like She could not break through in film the way she wanted to. Things were almost derailed for Dorothy because she got wrapped up in like the Hollywood blacklist scandal for a second, like a hot minute. She basically, due to her involvement in the Actors Lab and some of the other political stuff she did, she um, was accused of you know being a communist or having communist ties. She put a letter out saying that she had no idea her involvement with any of these organizations were related to communism, and she wasn't a member of the Communist Party now or then. Uh, that was the extent of the matter. She never like named names or did anything that she's just like, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> like She wasn't really a political person, so that was sort of the end of that. Um, I think it was like the earlier days of it when it was just starting up. Now... She had a return engagement at the Macombo in December of 1952, and it was there that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer studio agent saw her and recommended her to the new production chief, Dory Sherry. 
Uh, and he was like, you got to see this girl. They wanted her to do a club performance, like in a movie called Remains to be Seen. But he was also thinking that she would be perfect for a part in a new movie he was producing called Bright Road. This would be her first starring role. And she got great reviews for it. People were like, she's like a very emotional actress. She's very vulnerable. Um, when the trailer came out, everyone was just blown away by her looks and her performance. The film was about a teacher's struggle to reach out to a troubled student. And this was the first film she would appear in with Harry Belafonte. She developed a close relationship with Belafonte. And I think she kind of always had a crush on him, but it just never, nothing ever happened between them. She also had a good relationship with director Gerald Mayer of Louis B. Mayer families, uh, that connection. And she was an MGM star now. She, did have a relationship with uh, Mayor for like a year. And he really described it as like she was, they were very much in love. It was one of the happiest years of his life and he hoped it was for her too. So it seemed like a good little relationship. But after Bright Road, things in her film career were stalled once again. She was still doing nightclub engagements, which was frustrating for her because she's like, hey, I just did this movie and everyone loved it. Like, why am I not getting more movies? So she's doing these huge engagements. She's a big star. She's still being treated like trash when she goes to these hotels. Right. They, they just start letting her stay in the rooms. So she does an engagement at a hotel in Vegas called the Frontier Hotel, which I guess is an old school Vegas whatever. Yeah. She, they like agree that in her contract, they agree to let her stay at the hotel, but they make a specific request that she is never allowed to go near the pool. What? Yes. Now, they inform her management company that while she has hotel privileges, she is not allowed to use the pool. If she goes near the pool, they will be forced to drain it. Now, Dorothy, at this point in her life, is like, I'm so fucking sick of this bullshit. Like, she's like over it. So when she starts doing her performances, she starts like, bantering and saying things like oh I'm gonna take a little swim in the pool later <laughs> like things like that management like you can just picture the person's like collar like and his head like steam coming out of his ears they're freaking out they do things like shut the pool down for everyone placing a sign up saying it's under construction that's how worried they are that she's gonna fucking go in the pool they eventually drain the whole pool just to keep her out of the pool like it's so insane like psychotic it's psychotic so it's in Vegas where her affair with Phil officially cools down and she begins an affair with Peter Lawford. Now, this is before his Rat Pack days, but he is a well-known actor at this point. And because they're both sort of famous, they really have to keep this romance under wraps as it would destroy both of their careers. Her affair with Lawford ends and she's pretty devastated by this because he's really handsome and charming, like a great catch. Now, the grueling tour schedule is really becoming too much for her to bear. And for some reason, she is just, as I mentioned before, still unable to get this career, film career taken off, the take, uh, go, taking off, getting off the ground. What do I want to say? I'm so tired. Sorry. Taking off. Taking off. Right. Why did I add getting off the ground to well, it's it? Like the same thing. <laughs> when, you're getting off, was, <laughs> when you're getting off the ground, you're also taking off. Yes. Now... Some other personal stuff is going on in her life. Her mom, Ruby, finally ditches Geneva for an even bigger bitch, unfortunately. Really? <laughs> yes. Now, Ruby at this time is actually a pretty big radio. Like her, Right now, she's on a show called Beulah, which yeah. is a very famous I, show. I know Beulah. It eventually goes on to become a TV show that's really popular. She plays um, Beulah's best friend, Oriole. So she has a pretty big gig 
um, you know, a pretty good, good acting gig. None of this made her relationship with her daughter any better, though. And as I mentioned before, Dorothy had developed an interest in psychology and psychiatry, and she starts working on herself and working with a psychiatrist. Now, as depressed as she was at this time, all that was about to change. A movie was in development. It was an interpretation of the Bizet um, opera Carmen called Carmen Jones. Now, this was a all-black musical film adaptation of Oscar Hammerstein's 1943 Broadway musical Carmen Jones, which was, I mentioned before, a sort of takeoff of Bizet's opera Carmen. It was updated to a World War II era African-American setting. It's actually set in Jacksonville. Florida. Yeah. Your hometown. I know. See? Uh, So yeah, 20th Century Fox is doing like this nationwide talent search, like you know, a publicity stunt basically to find the perfect Carmen Jones. Uh, Dorothy wants to be seen for this role desperately. Now, this film is being directed by Otto Priminger, who is like a bald, fucking serious German <laughs> director guy, uh, a very tough and scary figure. Her biggest role at this point, as I mentioned before, was Bright Rose. Bright Road, where she played like a prim teacher. Priminger was like, no, you are not right for Carmen. She is a fucking lusty, sexual, like, you know, type of woman. You're this prim school teacher, etc. But he finally agreed to see her. What does Dorothy do? She shows up in a chaste outfit looking more like a school teacher than the lusty Carmen. Her sister actually said to her, like said that when she saw her leaving, she's like, what are you fucking doing? Like she had a Peter Pan collar, like all covered up a full skirt that didn't show off her figure. And she's like, I was going to say anything, but Dorothy would have like fucking gone off on me. So I just kept quiet. Now she walks into the meeting with Otto and he is like, you know, I'll give you the role of the smaller, the smaller role of the quiet Cindy Lou. And, and Dorothy is fucking outraged. She comes back. Vivian's like, Dorothy, you need to thought it up. Like you cannot like, (laughs) that's why he said that you walked in there like a, you know, like a prim little bitch. Dorothy's like, you're right. We need to make a plan for my follow-up meeting. Cause she's going to meet about this stupid role with for Cindy Lou that she does not want. She gets together with, um, Max Factor makeup artist and everyone she can like get on her side to get this appearance of the character, um, you know, this earthy like role of Carmen. She puts on a peasant blouse, she tossles her hair, she puts on a skin tight skirt with a really long slit, walks into Preminger's offices, and the minute he sees her, he says, My God, it's Carmen. And he <laughs> gives her the role. <laughs> Wow. It's like when they dress the uh, the dorky girl up in slutty clothes. Absolutely. She did like a Sandy makeover. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the original Sandy makeover. Uh, yeah. So he gets like a boner for her right away. Now, the remainder of the cast is Harry Belafonte, Pearl Bailey, Brock Peters, Diane Carroll. I mean, so it's like a lot of big names in this. In the um, book I read, Belafonte really talks about how this movie revolutionized what types of roles were available to black actors. Like they were playing romantic leads and, and this was a huge big budget release. This was not like considered one of those race films where it was just directed towards a black audience. This was for everyone. So 
just like seeing them be sexual beings was like revolutionary at the time. So filming was grueling for Dorothy because she really threw herself into this role. Um, She got along with the cast great, except for Pearl Bailey, who threw a lot of shade at Dorothy, including that she was pretty but couldn't sing. Uh, They did hire... um, They wanted an opera singer for this. So even though Dorothy was a good singer, she didn't have an operatic voice. So she did have, but I I, I haven't seen the movie, but I heard like her, her like lip syncing is like incredible. Like she didn't overdo it. So it looks very realistic. Sometimes people can over like move their lips. So it looks kind of fake. Uh, But apparently she did a great job. Now, um, Pearl also basically hated her because she was a bigger star at the time. So she kind of felt like, why am I not in this role? Um, There was some incident where like Dorothy is shoving Pearl's character and Pearl thought that she shoved a little too hard and she called Dottie or Dorothy a black bitch. Like, so Pearl was like really going off on Dorothy, like in an insane way, like an insane hater way. Was the press like talking about their feud on set at all? I don't know that it was out in the press, but it was definitely like on set. Everyone's like, what the fuck? Like, cause Dorothy is by all accounts, very sweet and quiet. Like she's not like someone you, who really fights. Like she has a feisty side, but in general, she's very friendly and sweet and like yeah. whatever. Everyone loves her. Now, Preminger is also like, he is an asshole and a tyrant on set. As a director, he's screaming at performers when they don't please him. It's like the type of thing where you're like, you're not making it better by making people cry and scream, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. So he did this to Dorothy as well. But eventually he softens towards her and he falls in love with her. I mean, I bet you he fell in love with her <laughs> when she walked into the office looking all hot. Um, but over the course of the filming, he really was like, she is going to be a major star uh, it turned into another My Fair Lady type deal. He's like this older man who's gonna fucking, you know, shape her into the star that he believed she was. And she was like, I want that. Like, shape me. Like, fucking make me a star. Um, so she, you know, fell in love with him too, as happens with directors and actresses. Now, he's unfortunately married at the time, but he is estranged from his wife. They began this affair. Dorothy is convinced he's leaving his wife for her, but her sister, I like her sister. She's like always the voice of like reason. Her sister said to her, that would be way too expensive, honey. And are you worth it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Vivian. Vivian. She's, we all need a Vivian in our life, I think. Right. (laughs) Now, Carmen opens to very favorable reviews. It has like a huge box office opening. It earned $70,000 its first week. I mean, that's a lot of money back then. Dandridge's performance as the seductive lead lead in this movie made her one of Hollywood's first African-American sex symbols and earned her positive reviews. Um, She also is the first black woman featured on the cover of Life magazine. Walter Winchell calls her performance bewitching, and Variety said her performance maintains the right hedonistic note throughout. Carmen Jones becomes worldwide successful, earning over $10 million at the box office and one of the year's highest grossing uh, films. Now, Daryl Zanuck knew he had a star on his hands, but he was trying to figure out how to use her, thinking the only way was to present her in non-black ethnic roles. On February 15, 1955, Dandridge signed a three-movie deal with 20th Century Fox starting at $75,000 a film. Uh, 
Dan- this was all Daniel, I'm sorry, Dar- Daryl Zanuck's doing. Like he wanted her and he pushed for this to happen. He had big plans for her and he really wanted to make her the first black screen icon. Dottie got a little haughty at this time. Like she definitely had to have her friends, including her best friend, Jerry, kind of put her in her place for being a little self-absorbed after all the hype of Carmen Jones. She was doing tons of press and being praised as the next big thing, like literally 24-7. So obviously she got a big head, but luckily Jerry kept her grounded. (laughs) Honestly, if somebody thought I was hot enough to play Carmen, I'd be a little (laughs) full of myself You gotta, I mean, I get it. And, and, and she she didn't stay that way. Like she was like, okay, you're right. Like I I need to calm down a bit. But I'm sure it's like insanely like you have all these people just saying you're like you're gorgeous, you're this. Like right. I mean, it has to be like intoxicating. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Dandridge was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress, becoming the first African-American nominated for a leading role. She was desperate to win this award, but Preminger warned her that the nomination was the breakthrough and Hollywood was still not ready to go so far as giving it to her. Still, she held out hope. Now, this is a very competitive year. Um, Grace Kelly was nominated for Country Girl. Audrey Hepburn was nominated. Judy Garland was nominated for A Star is Born. So it was like, Pretty tough competition. Who won that year? Grace Kelly wins for The Country Girl. Uh, I mean, I think it was definitely between Judy Garland, probably. I don't. I think Grace Kelly might have been a surprise win. I thought Judy Garland won. No, I think... I mean, I didn't see all the performances, but I feel like Judy Garland should have won. I mean, that's... No, like, I mean, I'm saying I thought, like, my memory serves, I thought it was Judy Garland no, who won for that. No, she but. never won one, except for, like, an, like, a special one when she really? was a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever. She became an overnight sensation despite not winning. As you mentioned, did you mention this in your thing where Hattie McDaniel wasn't even allowed in the room at her Oscar? Did you mention that in your episode? We were just talking about okay. that over dinner tonight. So, Dorothy was at the ceremony. Not only was she at the ceremony, she presented an award for uh, film editing to On the Waterfront. So, she really made it through like she was there and not only that she was presenting so that was like definitely a great evening for her and for black performers everywhere it was like this major breakthrough on april 11th 1955 she became the first black performer to open at the empire room at the new york waldorf astoria hotel because she did this the hotel started booking other black performers such as Count Basie, Joe Williams, Pearl Bailey, and Lena Horne. So she like broke the doors down at that place as well. Now, Zanuck has big plans for Dorothy, as I mentioned. He purchased purchases the film rights to um, Blue Angel, which is a Marlena Dietrich movie. Um, he wants to cast her as singer Lola Lola in an all-black remake of the 1930 film. 
She is also scheduled to star as Cigarette in a remake of uh, Under Two Flags. Um, she also is sort of asked to do the role of Tup Tim in the film version of The King and I, and se- several other like sort of supporting par- parts. Now, Otto Primager is like, no, you need to only accept lead roles. So he's like, you're a big fucking star. You're Dorothy Dandridge. You should reject those supporting roles. Both of those roles are eventually given to actress Rita Moreno. And Dorothy will regret not taking his advice for the rest of her life because it really set her off on like a downward spiral by rejecting these roles. She pitches to Daryl Zanuck that she wants to do play the role of Sherry in Bus Stop, a role that will eventually go to Marilyn Monroe. And Zanuck was like uh, shocked because he's like, I can't cast you in a movie like that because anytime I cast you, that's going to bring a racial element to movies that don't have one. Like he didn't even want to go down those like whatever, pull that string and have that happen. He was just like shocked that she even thought that she could do a role like that. She got a little bit of bad press for turning down The King and I. And at some point in 1955, she becomes pregnant by Preminger. He refuses to leave his wife at that time and marry her. So she's forced to have an abortion by the studio. She ends the affair at that time. Uh, So because she's turning down these supporting roles, her next film isn't until three years later that she's offered something in 1957. This is a film version of Island in the Sun. She is in an ensemble cast, including James Mason, Harry Belafonte, Joan Fontaine, and Joan Collins. (laughs) You love to see her. She portrays a local Indian shop clerk who has an interracial love affair with a white man played by John Justin. Now, this film is very controversial for its time. The script was revised numerous times to accommodate the motion picture production code requirements about interracial relationships. There were like... There was like an, a, one loving embrace between Dandridge and Justin that succeeded in not breaking the clo- code. That that's all they could like basically show. Now, this film did receive favorable reviews and was a pretty big success for the year. During this period, she also has affairs with actor Frederick March, uh, co-star James Mason, and there was a blind item I saw. They don't say the actor's name, but it sounded like Kirk Douglas. Really? Yeah, because they're like he's chiseled, he's muscular, he has a dimple in his chin. He's like a big movie star. I mean, that sounds like Kirk Douglas, right? Dimple in the chin? Could be. I feel like they were trying to let me know. <laughs> like that was what. Now, with fame, obviously comes tabloid writing about Dorothy's life. In January of 1957, an article in Hep magazine talked about Dorothy's thousands of lovers. Dorothy sued them for $2 million. This is a black public publication, and this kind of sent shockwaves through black media, like the media market. They were like, what the hell? No one had ever, no, people weren't suing for slander, especially stars. Her battle with tabloids was only beginning, though. CPM Magazine wrote an article about her being afraid of marriage and that she was warned not to marry white by the studio. Once again, she objected to this, and she wrote a rebuttal to the original um, article. But her biggest battle was yet to come, with the biggest tabloid going at the time, Confidential. The article that set her off was titled Dorothy Dan... I'm sorry, what was... It was titled What Dorothy Dandridge Did in the Woods... Whoa. Whoa. What I mean, did she do in the woods? <laughs> that gets your attention, right? Yeah. So 
It alleged that Dorothy had gone into the woods with a white man after a gig at a Lake Tahoe resort and fucked him in the forest. Honestly, I wrote, fucked him in the forest, tiptoe in the tulips. It's like some sexual version of tiptoe in the tulips. Like, fucked him in the forest is actually the sequel to tiptoe in the tulips. Yes, exactly. That's the romantic one. And then you're like, you know what? Now we're fucking in the forest. You know what? Lake Tahoe is a very romantic place. And there's lots of trees. Yes, um, Desi. There's, <laughs> lots trees. there's lots of trees to fuck through. Now, obviously, this story is not true. Of course, you know, what feeds these stories are stereotypes of overly sexualized black women doing anything to get a white man. And Dorothy's absorption into the white world at that time really solidified the rumor to many people. Her friend Jerry, after this article came out, she's like, you really need to like start, like, don't lose sight of your black roots. Like they started volunteering with the NAACP. Like she kind of saw that she needed to kind of keep her toes in both areas, basically. But the story was not only, was just not true. So Dorothy was enraged. Part of the problem with suing for libel, however, is that it opens you up to other things you might want to keep in the dark. Like once you start suing, then they can go after you for everything. And although that story wasn't true, Dorothy had a long list of affairs with white men that she did not want exposed. Her anger won out, however, and she fucking sued Confidential for libel over its article that basically described this scandalous incident. Now, they basically... They agreed to an out-of-court settlement of $10,000, but a few months later, Confidential says she had she had broken the agreement of their settlement when she talked about it in articles saying that the fact that they settled proved that it was a lie. So they were like, no, wait, you can't do that, and they're back in court to get their $10,000 back. Now, it was at this point, the second sort of trial or whatever, Dorothy learned the source of the story was a white band leader named Daniel Terry who sold the story for $200. He claimed this story happened in 1950, by the way, but obviously it wasn't worth anything until post-Carmen. The trial eventually ended and Confidential had no claim to get this money back. But Dorothy would get pulled into another thing when California set up a grand jury trial to uh, take down Confidential magazine. The only two celebrities to testify were Dorothy and actress Maureen O'Hara. So testimony from O'Hara was a big deal. That's a big story. Maybe we'll do another episode on her. There was also a disgruntled former magazine editor named Howard Rushmore who revealed that the magazine published false information provided by hotel maids, clerks, and movie theater ushers who were paid for these tips. Now, the stories were questionable always, like, they just didn't have any veracity to them. Most often they centered around incidents of sex in some kind of way. When the jury and press, they like went to Grauman's Chinese theater to determine whether O'Hara could have performed various sexual acts while seated in the balcony. That was the story they published about her. She's like really Catholic and kind of a good girl. So it's kind of like an insane thing to spread about her. They actually went there to the theater and like, no, she couldn't have blown them up in this balcony. It's not, there's not enough room. Um, So yeah, that was discovered to be 
impossible. Dandridge testified about the Lake Tahoe incident. She said that racial segregation had confined her to her hotel room the entire time of her nightclub engagement in, in, in Lake Tahoe. So when she wasn't in the hotel lounge rehearsing or performing, she basically was required to stay up in her room and not socialize or do anything at the resort, which we already know is fucking what happened. So... Besides that, and she didn't say this in court, she was there with her boyfriend, Phil Moore, at the time. So she wasn't going into the forest. Uh, She wasn't even allowed to basically fucking leave the hotel. Her testimony, along with O'Hara's, proved beyond any doubt that that um, they had committed libel at least twice. The judge ordered them to stop publishing questionable stories based on paid tips, and this pretty much curtailed invasive tabloid journalism until 1971 when they moved the National Enquirer um, to Florida, which has more... It has, like, more favorable libel laws there. So as long as they're based in Florida, they can get away with saying more untrue things and not worry about getting sued. Isn't that crazy? I didn't know that. That should be like national. Yeah. Like the same laws. Well, it's called the National Enquirer. <laughs> it's in the name. Seriously. Judge. Judge. <laughs> lawyer, lawyer Rachel is on the case. <laughs> Esquire. <laughs> uh, next, she agrees to appear in a film called Tamango. Uh, she stars opposite German actor Kurd Jurgens. Wait, his name is Kurd? Yeah, his name is Kurd. <laughs> <laughs> That's tight. A reluctant Dandridge agrees to appear in the film only after she re- thinks that it's about a 19th century slave revolt on a cargo ship traveling from Africa to Cuba. She quickly realized, though, that the script calls for her to swim nude. The majority of the film, she's in a two-piece bathing suit made of rags. So she's like about to drop out of it. Uh, she threatens to leave. Then the script and the wardrobe are retooled to like her liking. Um, this is another thing where they're not in, it's like a French-Italian production, I think. So they don't have to have the same code requirements that a U.S. film would have. So there's a passionate kiss between Jurgens and Dandridge in it. Um, they This can... Conf- this is like her first and only on-screen kiss with a white actor. Now, this movie is released in late 1959, um, like after it gets released in the other countries because America's like too scandalized by this kiss to have it seen. It gets mixed reviews and it's like a minor success. In late 1958, she accepts producer Samuel Goldwyn's offer to star in the um, film production of Porgy and Bess. Now, this will be her first major Hollywood film in five years. Her acceptance of this role angered the black community who felt like the story was negative stereotyping of blacks, it was degrading, etc. They initially start filming the movie with a man named Ruben Mamoulian. He is replaced by Otto Preminger. So her boyfriend's back in town. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, this shoot is fucking hell on earth for Dorothy for a lot of reasons. He basically takes over the film, immediately tells Dorothy, I'm sorry, Dorothy, her performance is shit. Like whatever they filmed before he came and they have to start all over. He says she needs intensive coaching to handle this role. Jesus. Now, this is a long and costly production. At some point, all the sets and costumes are destroyed in a fire and had to be replaced. That's like a $2 million loss. This is a cursed set. It's a cursed set already. The script has numerous rewrites. Um, the prolonged production, it just goes over budget. The film is like way over budget. Now, he 
as always, is a beast on the set, Preminger. He's just a fucking massive asshole. And he does things to make shit very tense. One incident, he's directing Dorothy in a scene with Sidney Poitier. She, he, he like yells at her to touch his head lovingly. And she like hesitated before she did it. And he like loses it. Now, this led to some gossip on the set that Dorothy didn't want to touch him because he was dark skinned, which just wasn't true. She's basically what happened was her ex-boyfriend is telling her to touch this man in like these romantic ways. And she kind of just got freaked out because she knew like psychologically he was like pushing her. And this just happens a lot on this set because he's directing her in these very romantic scenes and another scene that I'll get to in a second. The other thing that makes things horrible is Pearl Bailey is back on the set being a big bitch as always. (laughs) She is still there telling Dorothy telling everyone that Dorothy can't sing. <laughs> Same old song from Pearl Bailey. And she should have been Carmen and Bess. <laughs> I kind of love Pearl Bailey, actually. Now, the big scene that was super traumatic for Dorothy was a scene between her and Brock Peters. In the scene, Peters rapes Bess. So it's pretty fucking like fucking stressful scene to film. Once again, people start blaming her discomfort on the fact that Peters was dark-skinned. But... Once again, it's like, that's just not the case. It's her tension filming this type of scene with her fucking asshole ex-boyfriend yelling at her, pushing her buttons. He goes behind her back and tells Peters that she doesn't like him. So it makes the scene even more like he's just doing all these like psychological mind, like, like this kind of war chemical, like chemical Chemical warfare, warfare. psychological Psychological warfare. warfare. Like he's just doing all this shit to like push her buttons. She's like a nervous wreck, like nonstop on this set. So... Poitier and Peters are actually very sympathetic to Dorothy. Like they know what's happening. They don't think any of these rumors are true at all. Um, Yeah. I mean, he just is nonstop pushing her buttons, telling her she's horrible. All of her last movies, she sucked in like just nonstop. At the same time, she becomes engaged to a white man named Jack Dennison, another source of anxiety for Dorothy, because this is another interracial relationship. And this is a very open and public one. Her first pretty open one. Nobody likes this guy. This guy was a major D in a Las Vegas restaurant when Dorothy met him, and everyone is sure he's just scamming Dorothy and using her for her fame and connections. She eventually marries this guy uh, June 22, 1959. Not only was he a piece of shit con man, he is very abusive to Dorothy throughout their marriage. I mean, it's just a bad fucking scene. So... At this point, Jack owns a restaurant on Sunset Strip that Dorothy has been a huge investor in, but she tries to keep it on the DL. At some point, she invites Otto Preminger to the restaurant, and he is just completely unimpressed by everything. The restaurant, Jack, he thinks Dorothy's lying to him. At some point, she he asks her point blank, did you pay for this? And she evades the question, and he's like, that answers my question. Um, a lot of people are just completely baffled by this relationship between Dorothy and Jack, One person in the book says that it was what you expected of a really old Hollywood star marrying this much younger man who was just using her for her money and connections, et cetera. Dorothy at this point is only 37 years old. Like she's not that. She's not like Joan Crawford at 70 trying to, whatever. Now, 
On their honeymoon, she learns the truth about Jack. He is definitely a con man and in desperate need of money. And he basically lays it out to her that he needs, he's desperate for cash. She like is fucking struck by, like she is blindsided by this, even though everyone was warning her. At the same time, Porgy and Bess is released to mixed reviews and a huge fucking financial failure, basically because it went over so over budget, like it was almost impossible for it to do well. Her performance is particularly savaged by the press. Really? Yes. People think she was too thin and refined to pull off this character that they wanted to be more like, you know, not thin, like a model frame. They wanted her to be more real. She also, some people described her as being too chic to be a whore. Like, just like the most brutal fucking reviews that are really personal. It's not about her performance even. It's about her looks, basically. Now, her career is pretty much in shambles at this point. Um, The only positive thing kind of going on is there's talk of her playing Billie Holiday in the adaptation of Billie Holiday's autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, I'm sorry, a role that will eventually go to Diana Ross in 1972. But because her husband is a huge fucking loser, she makes another huge career blunder. She agrees to help save her husband's restaurant by performing there. People are just disgusted by his request. The black community declares that she has married a white pimp. The performances are just fucking sad. She is, you know, she she's lost her chops. She hasn't trained for this kind of stage performance in a while. She's not on point. It's a pathetic venue. Like it's she would never have performed at something as low like as his stupid fucking restaurant. Some of her friends refuse to go because they hear how awful it is and they don't want to face her afterwards. So even her friends don't want to show up because it's just too fucking hard to see her in this position. When the performances don't go well and she's sort of sitting with the people who do show up that she knows at a table, her husband would humiliate her in front of them by telling her to be sassier on stage. Like he's like, get sassier, be sassier. She is broke. She begins touring more to earn money, and she's really begun to numb herself with alcohol. She's almost 40, and it's an age she has dreaded turning her whole life. Making matters worse is her friend Diane Carroll is seeing her star rise. Dorothy knew that Hollywood, there was only room for one black leading lady, and she just really felt like a has-been at that point. It wasn't that she was mad for her, like, jealous, but it was just like, that's it, I'm done. Like, there's only one. Like, Hollywood only has room for one. Making matters even worse, Dorothy discovers that the people who are handling her finances had swindled her out of $150,000 and that she owed $139,000 in back taxes. This is due to some oil fill scam. They wrote a lot about it in the book, but of course I'm too dumb to get it. But several other stars were taken in the scam in addition to Dorothy. Now, she she just suffers like more crushing blows during this year. She's really devastated by the death of Marilyn Monroe. They were like old friends. Um, she had to do an ad for Ray Cerrone. Like that oh, was pretty, <laughs> pretty humiliating for her. And then she does... She does like a touring company performance of West Side Story, and she is just ripped to shreds in the reviews. Mm. Uh, I think she's drinking more at this time, and people speculate that might be part of the reason that her performance run just fucking tanked. Did she play Anita? Yes. Now, her marriage at this point hit rock bottom, if that's even the right term. Like, I don't know that it ever wasn't rock bottom. 
Jack had pretty much squandered any money that she did have, and he was viciously beating her, like once almost to the point of death. She told him she wanted a divorce, and he refused to leave. Now, part of her fear of him was not only the fact that he was an abusive prick, but back then a lot of Vegas people were rumored to have ties to the mob, and he was no exception. She just didn't know what he could do to her. He wasn't satisfied, though, until he left her completely destitute, going so far as pawning all of her jewelry and then mocking her with the pawn receipt, like throwing it in her face in front of her. He also cut up all of her fine linens with a pair of scissors and broke all of her Wedgwood china as she watched. He just like destroyed anything of value that she had. He's breaking her spirit. Yeah. So in April of 63, she had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, She was humiliated when pictures of her were published showing her outside the bankruptcy court. Um, The black community at this time are just really devastated by her downfall. She was this golden girl through, you know, throughout the past 10 years who had broken through so many barriers and now she was just being treated like garbage. So it was really like a heartbreaking thing for that community in particular to see. She was discarded. Yeah. She was completely thrown out. Yeah. So... I mean, it happens a lot in Hollywood, but this was just such a visible one that was just so awful after such hopeful. Now, she also starts being featured in negative articles. One of them was, why celebs go broke? Like, just like her picture on like the cover of this magazine with this awful, humiliating headline. So she's forced to sell her Hollywood home, and she moves into a small apartment on Fountain Avenue in West Hollywood. In 1963, her popularity has just dwindled, and she's basically performing in low-level nightclubs to pay off all these debts she has from numerous lawsuits and like you know stuff like that. Even more devastating at this point, she can no longer pay for her 19-year-old daughter Lynn's constant care by a private caretaker. Lynn is just put on a train and sent back to her. Lynn, I'm sorry, Dorothy is in a near nervous breakdown state by taking care of her daughter for like the few weeks she has her. She has no choice, but at this point to like have her daughter declared a ward of the state so she can be sent to live in a state institution. Even though this is definitely the right thing to do, her daughter is receiving good care here. It's not an awful place. It's like a very good place that she's going. Dorothy obviously never recovers from having to do this. Like it fucking breaks her. Um, Dorothy is now also on a steady diet of pills and booze, including Benzedrine. She goes on the Mike Douglas show in 1963 and tells the world about her daughter, Lynn, in what is described as a stunning moment of television. It's just incredibly vulnerable and brave. And people just have not seen a star go on tight TV and talk about something so awful. It's the first time she's revealed her tragedy publicly and just telling the world her greatest source of source of grief was a huge relief to Dorothy in a way because she had so much fucking guilt about her daughter. Now, her last few years are a mess. I mean, she's desperate for money. She agrees to do an autobiography for $10,000 that the ghostwriter just basically makes up. Like, he doesn't really work with her on it. It's just a quick fucking money grab. She would sometimes go out to see music and then drunkenly go up on stage and try to sing with them. Like her friends were like, I 
they, they would not want to go out with her or try to keep her from going out. Her health was getting really bad. She was hospitalized at some point for anemia, which was exasperated by her drinking. She went on a new antidepressant called Tofranil as well. Now, friends recall her always complaining about how tired she was. And I did read about her antidepressant, which isn't really used anymore. Um, but it, it when combined with alcohol, it makes you really drowsy and sleepy. So I don't know if that's common for every antidepressant, but for this one, so maybe that accounted for her always being drowsy. Now, at some point, her ex, Harold, sees her auditioning for a bit part at MGM. He literally does not recognize her. She doesn't look like the same person he once knew. And he's kind of saddened to see this big star, like just going to fucking audition for these bit scrap parts that are just nothing. Him and his brother are performing in Vegas at the time, and they invite Dorothy out, hoping that it would cheer her up. But Harold has not changed and basically does the same fucking thing when she's in Vegas. He goes to play golf and like they'll be like waiting for him at a restaurant. He just doesn't show up. Dorothy gets fucking pissed again. She leaves. And that's the last time they both ever saw her. Now, September was always a really bad month for Dorothy. It was when she married Harold and it was the month that Lynn was born. So it brought a lot of sadness for her every time it came around. On September 8th, 1965, she spoke by telephone with her friend, Jerry, and she scheduled. She was scheduled to fly to New York the next day to prepare, prepare for a nightclub engagement. Now, Jerry told biographers at some point that during this long conversation, Dandridge veered from expressing hope for the future to singing Barbara Streisand's People in its entirety. And then she ended the phone call with this remark, whatever happens, I know you will understand. Several hours later, Dandridge was found naked and unresponsive in her apartment by her manager, Earl Mills. She was dead. She had died. Um, the, the Los Angeles County coroners initially said that she had died of a fat embolism that resulted from a right foot fracture she had sustained in like a gym injury. She landed on her ankle wrong and fractured it. But after the toxicology report came back, they determined that the cause of death was an accidental overdose of the antidepressant she was taking that I mentioned earlier. Now, there were numerous notes left all over Dorothy's um, apartment instructing people to do things after she died, like when I die, I want this to happen, etc. Uh, the coroner never labeled the death a suicide or an accidental overdose. It was just unknown, labeled unknown. Now, obviously, it wasn't until like the 1980s that people really started talking about her as being this icon and inspiration. Actresses like Cecily Tyson, uh, Whitney Houston, um, Jada Pinkett Smith, um, Angela Bassett, and obviously Halle Berry began to acknowledge her contribution to the image of um, African-Americans in American motion pictures. In 1999, Halle Berry produced and starred in the HBO movie Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, which she won a Primetime Emmy Award, Golden Globe Award, Screen Actors Guild Award for all of these, for this performance. Did you ever see this movie? Uh, when it came out a long time yeah. ago. I tried to rewatch it but it's like impossible to find on streaming. Like no they don't way. have it. Yeah, they don't have it. Get it to HBO. <laughs> Seriously. Dude, of all the shit HBO still has up, they can't put the I couldn't believe it. movie up. Yeah. That's bullshit. Uh, another interesting thing is um, both Dorothy and Barry were um, from Cleveland, Ohio and born in the same hospital. Also, Halle Berry thanked Dorothy Dandridge. I'm going to get to that, Rachel. That's my ending line. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. I'm just like, look, I'm just kind of getting, I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little verklempt thinking about this moment. When per- Barry won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in Monsters Ball in 2002, she dedicated the moment to Lena Horne, Diane Carroll, and Dorothy Dandridge. Do you remember that moment? Yes. I mean, it was so, it was such a good Academy Award moment. I 2002, mean, the first time a black woman won a lead actress. Lead actress. Yeah. 2002. Um, and yeah, and I told Rachel when I was researching this sometimes that I would see, I would was looking up pictures of Dorothy and I was like, wait, is that from the Halle Berry movie? Like they really look like each other especially in some pictures, like not every picture, but there's some posed pictures where I'm like, they look, that looks like Halle Berry. Like they, do they really similar. favor each other in certain pictures. Like I couldn't tell who it was. I was like, cause you know how sometimes things get mislabeled on the internet? Yes. Like it's like a picture from the movie right. that Halle Berry recreated or something. Um, but yeah, like some of the pictures, I was just shocked how much they looked alike um, when it's all, obviously they're all done up and she's made to look like her in some ways, but yeah. So that is the Dorothy Dandridge story. Well, we will have some really amazing pictures on our Instagram. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones. You know what? I love um, her outfit in that Chattanooga Choo Choo, um, the the dance number I told you, like her first big thing with the Nicholas Brothers. Okay, well, I'll put that put up. Put that one up because it's like, I, up. when it was on, I was like, I would wear that because <laughs> it's like this black dress and she has this little black parasol. Yeah. I was like, that's what I need. <laughs> My little black parasol to keep the sun off of me. <laughs> very cute. It's very cute. I'll make sure to put an image from that up. Okay. Um, and there's we'll, lots of good ones. So yeah. yeah. Wow. That is a really amazing story. I was so looking forward to this episode. Oh, good. I mean, there was so much stuff I just didn't know about her. I know. I didn't know. It was hard to, I didn't know a lot about her and just reading it. I was like, oh, like, what do I put in? Like, there's cause so I was much. like, it could be I could have, it could have been like three parts probably. Like there was just so much, like even her childhood, it was like I had to cut stuff because there was just like, you know what I mean? Like it's just so much stuff about her. And this, this biography is very detailed and really like gets into the, you know, heart of a lot of it. And we'll probably do some other episodes inspired by other things that we mentioned. Yes. I feel episode. like that period is interesting and definitely deserves its own episode to explore. Absolutely. That racism in early Hollywood films, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Wow, Des. Well, we will see you guys on Friday for a mini episode. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.